May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Just a few years ago when I was in my late, my, my early 30s actually it would be, <laughs> I had a Sunday school class and they were all boys, 13, 14 year olds. And every Sunday, to make sure they listened to what the, the uh, lesson was about, I had a question time at the end of it and I, the one who got the most answers correctly got a pound. So one Sunday, I went through the lesson and at the end of it, nobody knew any answers at all. They were all looking at me blankly. And I, they weren't very hard questions. I mean, they were very simple because they were simple boys. So I, I just didn't know anything at all. So I got a bit peeved off at this and lost my temper a bit. And I said, what, what have I been doing here this morning? Nobody's paid any attention at all. You don't know anything that I've, that I've asked. And one of the wee boys, a wee smart Ali, he said, how do we know you listened? So I said, right, I made the big mistake in my life. I said, right, ask me anything you want. So he thought about it and he said, what do you call my neighbor? <laughs> so I've learned to be very, very specific about my questions because today we're going to be looking at the most the supreme question of life, if you want to call it that. And it's a question that we all need to answer. Is Christ prominent in my life or is he preeminent? Is Christ prominent in your life or is he preeminent? There was an article appeared a few years ago <clears throat> in the Washington Post and it was about a church in Maryland who had decided that they were going to change their attitude to Christianity. One of the founders said, the sad fact of the name, that the name of Jesus Christ has become for many sort of, um, what would be the word, exclusionary. They decided that having taken a survey of their parishioners, that they thought they would change their, their format of their service. So using Hindu and Zen, and a few verses from the Bible and recorded music by Willie Nelson. The leader of this group is quoted as saying, we are enabling people to discover God themselves. Maybe through Jesus, maybe through Buddha, maybe through other ways. Now many of us, I believe, would be appalled at that, at the way the defamation of Christianity has taken place in that church. And we should be. But before we come down too hard on those, on those people, I want to address a very dangerous and deadly disease that's running rampant in the church today. And at first glance, it seems pretty harmless, but its spores can infect an entire community. And I'm not talking about COVID. I call this malady the virus of practicality. And you know, I've been guilty of it, been guilty of spreading it. And here's how it works. Instead of calling people to faith, repentance, and submission to the supremacy of Christ, many of us tell them, tell these people that, that if they want to have a happy marriage, Jesus can give them one. Or a stress-free life, Jesus can give them a stress-free life. And while Jesus may certainly 
change our lives, our marriages, our stress levels when we bow before his preeminence. We must move away from what Jesus can do for me. We must move to, am I living in the light of his lordship? We don't simply add Jesus to our lives. We adore him with our lives through obedience. And that brings us to the text today from the, the book of Colossians. And much of the false teaching, teaching taking place in Colossians had to do with minimizing Jesus. Many people thought that he was important, but not essential. They had given him a place in their lives without recognizing that he demands first place. Jesus was prominent, but he certainly wasn't preeminent. And Paul refutes at least three misconceptions in the first chapter of Colossians. You see, the false teachers taught that God didn't create the world because in their view, in their view, matter was evil and God can't create evil. Believing that matter was evil, they urged that God would, they argued that God would have to come down to earth as a human in bodily form and they didn't believe that Jesus was the unique son of God. They believed that he was one of many intermediaries between God and the people. And as we look at the first few verses of Colossians this morning, we come to the pinnacle of Christianity. In Jesus, God's complete and perfect revelation is fully revealed. Our passage is broke, breaks into two natural sections, with the last part of verse 18 providing the override, overriding theme so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy of Jesus over creation. We read about that in the first few verses. And then we read about the supremacy of Jesus over his new creation in the final few verses. You see, Jesus is paramount over everything that is created. We see that in verses 15 to 17. And he's preeminent over all that he has redeemed in verses 18 to 23. Another way to say it, that he has, is a, that he has first place over the cosmos and the, crea and the church. He is Lord of everything he's made, and he's Lord over everyone he has made. This passage is one of the strongest passages in Scripture as, as it relates to the supremacy of Jesus you see, verse 15, the first part of verse 15 says, he is God. And Paul doesn't mince his words here. He is the image of the invisible God. And images convey meanings way beyond what words can describe. My wedding ring represents the fact that Denise foolishly said yes to me. My ring doesn't make me married. Rather, it's a symbol that I am married. Listen carefully to these words. Jesus is not just a symbol of God. He is God himself. The word image in Greek is akion, and it refers to likeness or manifestation or replica. And in the culture of that day, image was a dire stamp that was able to make exact reproductions. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the precise copy because he is God himself. 
He both represents and manifests God to the world. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the only one, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And that phrase, made him known, means that Jesus declares to the world what God the Father is really like. In John 14, 9, Jesus revealed this about himself. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And in a parallel passage in Hebrews 1, 3, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Someone has said that Jesus is God with skin on. And that's a very good word picture. He is the unique Son of God. And we see that in the second part of verse 15. Jesus is not only God, he is the firstborn over all creation. Jehovah Witnesses believe that this verse teaches that Jesus was a created being, and therefore he can't be God. Actually, the phrase firstborn is most frequently translated as heir or owner. In ancient times, it meant that the ranking one or the supreme one, if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob wasn't the firstborn, but he was the heir. And this is strongly supported in Psalm 89, 27, where God read, or God read that, or, well, sorry, that we read that God appointed King David as his firstborn, even though he was the youngest of eight brothers. And this verse concludes by saying that David will be the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Firstborn, therefore, is a title of honor, not chronological order. Then we read in verse 16, he is the creator of all things. You see, Jesus is the image of God and the exalted one over all creation because he is the creator. And in any case, and in, in, in case anyone misunderstands what firstborn really means, Paul explains that all things were created in, through, and for Christ. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus isn't a mere man. He is the creator of all things, those things we can see and those things we can't see. And the whole context of Colossians 1 declares that Jesus is a sovereign creator, not one who was himself created. And because false teachers had got into the church and taught that the physical world was evil, they thought that God himself couldn't have created it. They reasoned that if Christ were God, he would be in charge of only the spiritual world. But Paul explained that, that all thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers on heaven and earth of both the visible and the invisible world are under the authority of Christ because he created them. And since the Colossians gave undue prominence to angels, Paul here quickly puts everything under the rule of Christ. Jesus has no rival. And this verse also refutes the false teaching that Christ was one of many intermediaries and the angels were to be worshipped. The highest angels, prince, angelic princes, are subject to Jesus, whether they be seraphim or cherubim or whether they be demons or Satan himself. Jesus is Lord of all. He's not only the creator, 
He provides the purpose for His creation. We read that all things were created by Him and for Him. You see, the goal goal of, of creation is to glorify Christ. Revelations 4.11 in the New Living Testament puts it this way, for you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. So we've looked at him as the creator, and then in verse 17 we go on to see that he holds all things together. It's important to keep in mind that Jesus holds everything together. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Jesus existed before everything else, as he declared in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. To hold together means to prevent something from falling into complete chaos. Christ is before all things, both in time and rank. He's not only the creator of the world, he is the cohesion that keeps it all together. By him everything came to be, and by him everything continues to be. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he holds everything together by his powerful word. If he were to remove his sustaining power, everything would dissolve into chaos. It was really interesting to watch the news over the last couple of weeks to see stories of, of a new possible lockdown coming to the fore and experts warning of a more virulent very wave of COVID mixed in with stories of polio and monkeypox and war and fires all over the place. But you know, we don't have to be distressed or become unplugged because Jesus is keeping everything from falling apart. He upholds everything by the word of his power. Remember that there's no crisis in heaven. Jesus will be exalted above all the nations. And then we come to the supremacy of Christ over his new creation. Jesus is supreme over creation. We just looked at that in verses 15 to 17. And now we turn to verses 18 to 23. We discovered that Jesus is preeminent over his new creation. The focus shifts from the old natural creation to the new spiritual creation. The creating God is the reconciling God. And we see first that he is the head of the church, verses 1, or sorry, verses 18 to 19. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the, from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, the phrase that Paul uses here is a very emphatic one. It literally means he himself is the head. Only Jesus qualifies to be the head of the church. And the word head means that Jesus is the authority or source of the church. And we can relate to that. We know that the body gives the, the head gives the body the ability to grow, and without it, the body would die. Many churches seem to forget this. You see, if Jesus is not supreme in a church, then there is no church. And that was part of the trouble in Colossae. They had lost connection to Jesus, and as a result, were experimenting with all sorts of false doctrine and sinful behavior. But let me tell you this morning, Jesus is the head of St. Mary's. Jesus Christ is supreme over this church, and we bow before his authority. Jesus is the beginning, which means that he is the source. 
The word actually has two meanings, to rule and to begin. In Matthew 16, 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. You see, the church is the creation of Jesus, and as such, we must follow his lead. He is the firstborn from among the dead, signifying that he is the supreme one, and his resurrection is the guarantee that we too will rise. I love Colossians 1.19. It gives the God the Father great joy and pleasure to have all his fullness dwell in him. You see, it greatly pleases God for the Son to have preeminence over creation and the church. And there are three significant truths about Jesus in this verse. The fullness of God dwells in him. And the word dwell means to take up residence and points to the incarnation. It is used in the sense of a permanent dwelling and would remind the believers of God's desire to choose a place for him to dwell in the Old Testament. Look at Colossians 2.9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And the third of the phrase, all his fullness, meant the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. God, or Paul uses the term eight different times in Colossians to show the believers that Jesus is the fullness of God and no one else. The fact that it pleased the Father to have all the fullness dwell in Jesus is proof that Jesus Christ is God. John 1, 16 from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. And then we move on to Colossians verse 20. Paul describes the work of Jesus in reconciling lost people to himself. As people come to saving faith in Christ and are reconciled to Christ through his blood, they become members of the church, the church of which he is head. Verse 20 begins with a general statement about reconciliation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, the false teachers in Colossae were teaching people that they could, could, could get close to God through the worship of angels. They could also get close to God by observing certain rules and regulations. But they couldn't promise total and complete reconciliation. Reconciliation happens when someone or something is completely altered and adjusted so that a relationship of peace can begin with the one with whom estrangement had taken place. Paul establishes four elements about the reconciliation of Christ in this verse. Firstly, the focus is to reconcile to himself. Secondly, the scope is all things. Reconciliation involves the whole universe. Thirdly, the result is peace. Through Jesus, our hostility with God can end. And then we have the means, which is through his blood shed on the cross. Salvation is only through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as our sin payment. And Colossians 1.21, Paul reminds us what we were like before we experienced peace with God. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind, because of your evil behavior. We were alienated or estranged. And we use the words alien to refer to strangers or outsiders. And apart from the grace of God, all of us are estranged from God. 
We were enemies. We were not just alienated. The Bible says that we were actively hostile to God. Our minds were at war with God. Romans 8, 7, the mind of sinful man is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Our behavior was evil. Bad thoughts often lead to bad behavior. And what's inside will come out. Paul's intention is not to dwell on what they were apart from Christ. Despite these negative traits, God took the initiative in verse 22 and extended grace. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Notice that it was Christ's physical body that reconciled us. The false teachers in Colossae denied that Jesus had a real human body. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus was both God and man. 1 Peter 2 says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. So we're holy in his sight. We're set apart without blemish. That takes us back to the Old Testament whenever the, the lamb was brought forward. It had to be a pure unblemished lamb. Three were free from accusation. Well, when no charge of condemnation can be brought against us. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. Paul's emphasis on our holy standing before God was a direct attack on these false teachers. They promised a kind of perfection from those who had secret and mystical knowledge. In essence, Paul is saying, you already have a perfect standing in Christ. You're holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Why seek for it anywhere else? Let's finish by looking at the last part of verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established, firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, the if clause doesn't mean that a believer can lose their salvation if he fails to continue in the faith. This can be translated if indeed you continue in the faith, and I believe that you're doing so. This is how the word is used in this verse. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Just as a house set in firm foundations will not move, so if you are truly saved and built on the foundation of Jesus, then you will continue your faith. Let's go back to the supreme question of life. We've discovered at least seven characteristics about Christ this morning. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He created all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the fullness of God dwelling in him. He's reconciling all things to himself. Contrary to what, what the leaders in that organization in Maryland have said, I can't even call it a church. Jesus Christ is exclusionary and must remain so. Because of his supremacy over all things, each of us face a question this morning. Is Jesus supreme in my life? Is Jesus supreme in your life? You know, I used to encourage people to make Jesus Lord in their lives. 
But then I learned from Scripture that Scripture never speaks of anyone making him Lord except God himself. Acts 2, 36, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So the mandate from the Bible for both sinners and saints is not to make Christ Lord, but rather to bow to his lordship. He is ever and always Lord. Whether or not anyone acknowledges his lordship or surrenders to his authority, you know, some of you have surrendered yourself to Christ by receiving him into your life for forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, you're still alienated. You're an enemy of God. Your mind is at war with him. Your behavior is evil. Bow before him right now and receive forgiveness of sins and be declared holy without blemish and free from accusation. Others of you have, others of you have already been converted but perhaps you're living for yourself and not in recognition of the supremacy of Christ. For some of you, Jesus is prominent in your life, but he's not preeminent. He has a place in your world, but he doesn't occupy first place. Maybe you've mistakenly thought you could just add him to your life without bowing before his all-encompassing authority. But this morning, it's time to surrender to him completely. Philippians 2.10 provides a fitting close to our time this morning, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sooner or later, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's make it sooner. Let's make it right now. Amen.